Work is as diverse as the worker who performs it. Thought work, filled with problems to be solved, technology to invent, and analysis to interpret is vital to our society, but so is physical work. How does an imagined project become a tangible reality if not for those who construct, out of wood and metal, what was conceived in the mind of a designer? Even though we all desire to work, we know from experience that difficulties accompany it. If we know work is so difficult, why do we still desire it? Is work essential to what it means to be human? Or is work merely a means to an end? Does God care about what we do? Or only how we do it? The redemptive story of the Bible sheds light on these questions by showing us that work is dignified because it finds its origin in God. We also come to realize that work has not always been difficult, but was once so joyous that discerning whether one was at work or at play was indecipherable. Because of the fall, we now languish under the pressures and pain of labor. And yet, though our experiences with work is of its difficulty, we catch glimpses in which work is play. Finishing a project, completing a task, solving a problem, creating that piece of art that perfectly captures it, leaves a trace of what was, but also projects as a hint of what will yet be. Good morning, everyone. That video is awesome. I had a part of it. That's why it's so good. But anyways, um, we are in a series called Work. And uh, what it is is a theology of work. And it's important that we understand uh, the difference between the theology of work and what's called the ethics of work. Because there's a lot of stuff out there as far as materials goes, uh, resources and all of that that you all can get your hands on um, when it comes to ethics of work. The ethics of work seeks to ask and answer these questions like how should we work and um, how should I go about thinking about my work uh, as far as terms of punctuality and character and integrity and what should I do and all this kind of stuff. But a theology of work is much different than that because a theology of work is asking the question, what is work in and of itself? And how does work relate to the person of God? That's the theological aspect of it. And we have to realize that God is really real. God is the real being in all the universe, and everything that we experience in reality needs to be understood in relationship to who God is. We cannot interpret anything rightly apart from God. And so as we come to talk about the theology of work, we have to do so with these thoughts in our minds, asking ourselves the question, what is work? Why do we do it? And how does it relate to God? And if you remember, last week we talked about how the Bible is a singular story of God's redemption. And the central concept is that God wants to be in relationship with human beings. That story is like a drama with four acts. Act one is creation. Act two is fall. Act three is redemption. Act four, recreation. But when we think about work, we typically think about work in act two, which is fall. That's why it's frustrating. That's why it's hard. That's why we dread it. That's why we don't want to go. That's why if you're a parent and your kid ask, keeps asking for money, you go, get a job. Because we think, ah, oh, that'll teach them. But in reality, we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, is work to be understood primarily as the thing that we experience because of the fall? Or should we think about work pre-fall? What would work look like if we understood work from a theological concept in creation? And that's where we're going to be at this morning, asking ourselves the question, what is work as it relates to God? What is work like in the creation, in act one of the biblical storyline? And because most of us approach work from the perspective of the fall, for us, work is painful, work is something you just have to do and you just grind through it and get over it. But in reality, work is a dignified thing. It brings dignity. It's good. How in the world can work be good? How can work be dignified? It's good and it's dignified when you understand it in its relationship to God. And so what we're going to see from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 this morning is this. 
Work is a dignified endeavor because God himself works and God continues his work by delegating it to humanity. And so what we're going to come to understand is work is a good thing. It's a joyful thing. And how we know it is those things is because God does it, firstly. And secondly, because God delegates that work to us as human beings. And we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So let's pray. So, Father, we pray, God, that you would help us to come to terms and grasp the theological aspect of the concept of work. Lord, and I pray that you would explode whatever pre conceived notions we have about work and God you would lay us bare before the Holy Spirit to purge us of false thinking but also to replace false thinking with right thinking so that we would come to understand God as it relates to you as you relate it to work us to each other and us to nature and all these things so God teach us I pray and God would you help me to not say anything unbiblical or go beyond the bounds of what you want to communicate this morning. Help me. And God, help us. Grant us ears to hear. Grant us minds to think and conceive. Grant us hearts to believe this. And God, would you reveal yourself, most importantly. And God, would you just satisfy us with yourself, we pray, teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1. In case you don't know where that's at, uh, page one <laughs> in, in the Bible. Remember last week we talked about how the Bible is a book fundamentally about God. And we see that again in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the subject is God. And what God does is he creates the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, we're reminded that the whole universe is about God. And in fact, it's about God creating the universe. For the Hebrews, they didn't have a singular word that could uh, really convey the all-encompassing aspect of the universe. And so they had a phrase that they used, heavens and earth. And the best way to think about it is imagine if you have a giant stick, and on one end of the stick, you call it heavens, and on the other end of the stick, you call it earth. Now, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean that he only created the ends of the stick. It also implies he created everything within the ends. And so by the phrase itself, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, it reminds us that God is the maker of all things. Everything is made by God. And how did he make it? I love what Hebrews 11.3 says. It reminds us the power of God and the creativity of God and the uniqueness of God. It says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or in other words, God created everything by speaking it into existence. And before he spoke, there wasn't anything. But by his act of speaking, things Boom, showed up. It's incredible. But not only did he create by the word of his power, but God also holds all things together by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the, uh, the universe by the word of his power. And Colossians 1.17 says it's Jesus who is the one who is holding all things together. And this is important stuff because it reminds us that before God, there isn't anything. God is just there, and he spoke by his word everything into existence, and he continues to speak and preserve and hold everything together so that what was created by his word remains existing by his word. So the reason why you exist and the reason why you continue to exist and your body just doesn't explode and evaporate is because God is speaking your preservation right now. That's incredible. That's the kind of power that God is. Not just possess, but is. And because that is who God is, God has all authority. He can speak into existence things that didn't previously exist. 
And because of his role as creator and sustainer, he commands and demands that he be glorified and praised. Of course he does. Why wouldn't he? For if God was to give his praise or his glory to another, it would rob him of his glory and praise. But God is not an idolater. God won't have another God before God. And because God won't do that, he won't let you do that. So God commands praise and glory because he is worth it. And he has all authority, and everything owes its existence and preservation to the sustaining power of God's word. That's incredible, especially when you think about how that word became flesh and dwelt among us. So not only does God is the creator and sustainer of all things, but we come to find out that God is actually working when he creates. And we're going to see this in Genesis chapter 1. This is the relationship of work and theology. How does this work out? We're going to see that God dignifies work because he himself is a worker. So let's go to Genesis 1, and what we're going to see is this. God creates and develops what he creates progressively. He creates everything, heavens and earth. But then he's going to take what he made, which was formless and void, and he's going to shape it and mold it, and he's going to construct it into a big picture thing called a realm. And within that realm, he is going to specify what kind of creatures he wants to inhabit that kind of realm. And we'll see that progressive nature of how God creates things, and we'll begin that with the realms. Look at this in verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. So from the beginning, God says, here's everything. And then he makes this realm called light. But he doesn't specify what kind of light he's talking about. He just says light. And you're going, what kind? He'll get to that. Be patient. And then we jump down to verse 6. So that's realm number 1. Here's realm number 2, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. The second realm that God creates is water. But there's water above called the sky, and there's water below called the sea. Now, he doesn't specify what he creates in those things yet. He just is saying, I created a realm. Third thing that God creates as far as realms go, verse 9. God said, let the waters uh, under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. So what we have in the opening chapter is God is creating. He created everything. He begins to form it and shape it into realms, and now he's going to specify what he intends these realms to be inhabited by. He gets more specific, more concrete, more precise, and that begins in verse 14 where God creates two great lights. He says, And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And then he goes on and describes these two great lights known as sun and moon. So God says, here's a realm, and I'm going I'm to create inhabitants of this realm called sun and moon. And now he's going to go to the second realm, which is the seas above, which is called the sky, or the water above called the sky, and the water below called the sea. And that goes in verse 20. He says, And let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created these things. He saw the realm of the sky above, and he said, Birds. And he saw the realm of the sea below, and he goes, Sea creatures. And they become inhabitants of that realm. And then we remember the third realm is the earth. And we see this in verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And then verse 26, God makes the decision to make man in his image. And so God created, verse 27, man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And so the realm of the earth is now being inhabited by beasts and livestock and creeping things and human beings. So did you see the progressive nature of how God works? He creates everything. 
formless and void, begins to shape it, makes big realms, and then precisely and specifically creates inhabitants to occupy those realms. God gets more and more specific as he creates. Do you see it? And when God was finished creating, in chapter 2, God refers to what he created as his work. See this in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth, remember, that means the universe, it was finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Why? Because God because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what we see from the beginning is that God creates and God considers creation, the act of creation, a form of work. Now, you and I approach work most of the time as though it's an evil, wicked thing. And so when we say work is evil and wicked, and then we hear God works, you kind of go, oh, no, is God wicked? Or do I have a messed up view of work? Which is it? Because it can't be both. And what we see is when God creates and identifies his creation as an act of work, he is legitimizing work itself. Work is not evil. It is good, or else God wouldn't do it. But not only that, we understand from Psalm 115.3, that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And so if something God did is creation, but God only does what pleases him, then creation is an act of his which brings him pleasure. Or in other words, God is pleased to work. Work is enjoyable. Sounds bizarre, right? But for God, it is enjoyable. From the beginning, work is good and enjoyable. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, Every Good Endeavor, about this concept. He says, in the beginning then, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do but was beneath the dignity of the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have a more exalted inauguration. So we learn from the beginning, as we look at the storyline of Scripture and we look at Act 1 in creation, that work is good and enjoyable, and God does it. And because of that fact, we can say, yes, indeed, work is good. But God doesn't just work in creation and just take a step back and just kind of, you know, exit stage right and just forget it. That's called deism. That's not Christianity. The idea that God created everything, put natural laws in there, and just took a step back and just became disinterested in the everyday workings of life, that's not God. God is interested. God is involved. God is actively working, not only back then in creation, but now presently in a thing called redemption. If you remember in uh, Exodus chapter 14, you remember that the Israelites were in Egypt and they're in slavery and everything, and, and uh, they got, you know, let my people go, and then they take hightailing it through the desert, and then they run into the Red Sea. Uh-oh. And they look, and they say, uh-oh, we can't, we can't, uh-oh. And then they see an army coming on, and the army's ready to chop all their heads off and everything, and they're going, okay, wait a minute. So I jump in the sea, and I drown, or I get my head chopped off. This isn't good. Moses... What are you doing? Come on, dude. Are you kidding me? You just let us out to die? And in the midst of that kind of fear and all that kind of stuff, Moses says to the people in verse 13 of chapter 14 in Exodus, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Which is a good reminder that you know what? God is, yes, the creator, and he's big God, and he's transcendent, and he's huge, and he's powerful, but God is also imminent. God is close. God is involved in your day-to-day -day life so much so that God says, I'm for you. I'll fight for you. God is actively working, not just way back in creation, but even presently through redemption. And even in Jesus' own life, 
He was healing a bunch of people and was doing so on the Sabbath. And a bunch of people got all hot and bothered that he would do such a thing. And they asked, what are you thinking? Jesus answers them in John 5, 17. My father is working until now. And I am working. So Jesus, even in his own life, legitimizes the goodness of work, especially in redemption. And Paul reiterates the same thing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, commenting on the spiritual growth that the church is experiencing. God says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And do you see what Paul did there? He said, redemption in its beginning was a work of God. But God is also going to bring what he began to a point of completion so that God is working in the beginning, working in the means, and working in the end in redemption. Now, if you piece all these things together, think about the implications of this. It's staggering. Colossians 1 said that Jesus is the creator. 117 in Colossians says that Jesus is the sustainer. And Colossians 1 is the same text we talked about where Jesus is the redeemer. And we just read that Jesus is the one who began the redemption, is in the process of working out the redemption, and will bring it to its conclusion. Or in other words, everything was created from G- by Jesus, everything is being held together by Jesus, and Jesus is redeeming all things. So Jesus is important. He's in every nook and cranny and aspect of reality. Every part of it is owing its existence and continued existence to Jesus. Not only that, but everything that's broken and messed up about this world is about to be redeemed finally and permanently because of Jesus. There's no point in your life, any minute, any second, where God is not interested. He wants to be a part of that life. Jesus is seeking to be preeminent, supreme in all things. And I know people, they orient their lives, and many Christians do this, where they orient their life and they go, God first, and then, and then you put your list together, right? And I go, no, 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 no. Let's not do that hierarchy vertically. Let, let's lay that thing on its side, and let's begin to realize that if work is important, you Christ is to be supreme in work. If family is to be important, you Christ is to be supreme in your family. If your hobbies are important, you Christ is to be supreme in your hobbies, in your entertainment, everything. So it isn't God and then do whatever you want. It's God is supreme in everything above and beyond all of those categories. Jesus is Lord of all of your life. And I love what John Piper says about this. He says, all that came into being exists for Christ. That is, everything exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything, from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating scientific discovery, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human being, everything that exists exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known. Now think about the implications of that for your work. If Christ created everything, sustains everything, is redeeming everything, is your work a part of everything? And if it's a part of everything, might you want to have or allow Jesus to have a say in that? Perhaps? These implications are staggering. Christ is to be supreme in these things. So, what do we learn from this? That work is a dignified endeavor because God himself did it. God works in creation. God is working in sustaining creation, but God is also working in redeeming creation. But the next part is that God delegates his work to us as human beings. And through that delegation, God continues to work. God is not idle. God is not lazy. God is not on vacation. God is attentive and alive and active. And so we'll see this in Genesis 1, and we'll start in 27. We'll see this thing called the cultural mandate. It sounds fancy. 
And I guess it is, but it's not a big deal. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The reason why this is called a cultural mandate is because it is a command or mandate by God to human beings who bear his image that they are to go and create culture. Culture involves language, it involves relationships, it involves society, it involves uh, creativity and beauty and, util and utility, like making creation useful. And so when we look at verse 28, we see God commanding humanity to go and create culture. He says three things. First, be fruitful and multiply. Now, obviously, this is pretty easy to understand what in the world he means. The verse before that, he just said, male and female, I created them. If you want to procreate a species, it must happen between a male and a female. So God has in his mind the multiplication and the fruitfulness of the species called humanity. But he gives the same command to a bunch of animals, the, the, king, the, the, the animal kingdom. So are we just animals? Nope. Because the animal kingdom is just told procreate. But the second command builds on the first one and assumes procreation, but now specifies procreate with a purpose. Verse, or the second one is, and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, when you see fill the earth coming on the heels of be fruitful and multiply, that sounds redundant. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Come on, we get it. But the be fruitful and multiply is followed by a second command, fill the earth for the purpose of subduing the earth. Now, when I say subdue the earth, some of you may bristle. You're just kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound good. Like I know when you, somebody subdues something, that involves violence. But we have to remember our storyline. We're talking about creation right now. This is pre-fall. So there is no violence in the garden. So subduing cannot mean violently. It cannot mean exploitative. It cannot mean enslaving or manipulating or being power over uh, to make it uh, obedient to whatever you want. It must mean something different. What must subdue mean? It gives the idea that humanity is to harness the natural resources that are present in the earth and to develop its potential. To take what God has granted you and to harness that and then make something of it. Now think about the way that God created. Big stuff, bigger stuff, more specific stuff, more and more specific, progressively getting more and more defined until day seven comes and then God takes a step back. And on day seven, he basically says, okay, Adam and Eve, your turn. Take what I've given you in creation and I want you to take this abstract stuff like trees and rocks and minerals and all this stuff and I want you to make stuff. Go make a culture. Go ahead, you have my blessing. And so the command is subdue or take advantage of the natural resources that God has endowed to humanity in order to cultivate and create a culture. That is what work for humanity is. Now remember, this isn't abstract. We see this happen all the time. You take a stick, you find some weeds, and you make some rope, you tie the, the weeds on the end of the stick with the rope, you have a broom. We do that all the time. Take some seeds, take some dirt, put the seed in the dirt, put some water on it, boom, you have bread eventually. <laughs> so we understand this. Take the natural resources, harness them, and create something out of it. Go do that. That's God's commission. It's his mandate. God is interested not only in 
the procreation of species, but also the creation of a society. It's important to understand. And then dominion. You see this last part. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word dominion has the idea of royalty in it. And it means royal authority. And so what God does as creator and king of creation, he delegates that royal authority to humanity and now says you are a (laughs) sub-king. And and you are taking the reins on creation. And I want you to have authority and I want you to rule over it. Now that again sounds like we can just do whatever we want with the world and just kind of exploit it and then discard it when we're done with it, but no. The idea is a stewardship. It's the idea that God has now entrusted to the tender care of humanity all that he has created. This is yours. Take care of it. Use it. Enjoy it. That's what it means to have dominion. And if you remember, if you saw dominion over the fish of the sea, the specifics within the realm, and over the birds of the air, the specifics within the realm, and over the living creatures, the specifics over the realm, God has granted and delegated that kingly authority over to humanity to preserve it, to protect it, to promote it, to care for it. That is incredible. But you and I don't experience life like that. We see exploitation. We see all kinds of ways that the creation is not being cared for. And so we go, is that possible? Not only is it possible, it was reality. And in the new creation, it will be reality once again. That's why there's a new city in the new creation, new culture. I love what Ian Hart writes about this in his commentary on Genesis. He says, exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representatives is the basic purpose for which God created man. Man is appointed king over creation, responsible to God, the ultimate king, and as such, expected to manage and develop and care for creation. And this task includes work. So the cultural mandate is take what I have given you and develop it, cultivate it, Tap into its uh, unharnessed potential. Do something with it. Make it beautiful and lovely and enjoy it. That's incredible. That's what human work is. All right, let's look at chapter 2, verse 5. And we're going to see some more specifics about human work. When no bush on the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and check this out, And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So you can see that God created humanity. And according to verse 5, with the intention to work the ground. So not only did God work, not only does God delegate work, but God intends for humanity to work. But what is the purpose of it? Like we already said, is to create culture. But in verse 15, there's something in there. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Obviously, the word work involves labor, some sort of physical labor. But did you notice the phrase to keep it? The idea of preserve it, cherish it, protect it. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because of verse 9, I think. Notice this. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, we're to work it and to keep it or protect it. 
But all of us, most of us anyways, think about work in terms of its utility. The fact that by our working, we get paid, and by getting paid, I can have a sustainable life. That's how we relate to work, most of us. And we see that in verse 9, actually, that is exactly here. In fact, God says, yes, I want this man Adam and his wife Eve to work the ground in the garden, and there's going to be trees that are going to pop up. And look at the end of the verse. It says, and it will be good for food. Adam's work is going to produce an ability to sustain he and his wife's life. So approaching work in order to sustain your life is good. God put that in creation. It's good. But did you see the other thing? God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Embedded in creation is beauty. And if we're going to be working and we're going to be keeping the garden, then our work and our keeping, our preserving of the garden is going to involve beauty. It's going to involve the aesthetic pleasure. And so let me ask this question. When you work, do you work for the beauty of it? But think about that. We know intuitively that we do work for the beauty of it. Think about teachers. You're sitting with a, with a student who's just having a hard time trying to figure out how to do this, and you're working with them, you're praying for patience, and you're just like, you can do it, you can do it. And then finally they look up, and they go, I get it. And you look at them, and goosebumps go off, and you're just like, oh, you want to weep, and you're like, beautiful. You learned this. And think about people who build things, construction workers and carpenters, and they finish a product even though it was something that was hard and they're hammering things and I don't know how to do this and they're sweating pipe and all of a sudden they're like, I don't think there's going to work. And then finally it works and they step back and they go, beautiful, worked. Think about stay-at-home parents. You're with your kid and they're throwing and hitting, pooping everywhere and you're just like, ah! And then finally they're dry and they're fed and they're quiet and they're napping and you look and you go, beautiful. <laughs> it's so we know intuitively that there is supposed to be beauty in our work. But when we look at the work around us, do we not see its ugliness? That is not because work is ugly or evil. It's because the effects of the fall are ugly and they have distorted work. Now, there's a variety and complexity of human work that's in the garden. We don't have enough time to develop everything, but I want to pinpoint a couple things. We saw in verse 5 that there's supposed to be physical labor to, to work the ground, which is what we call in our culture blue-collar work. But there's also in our culture white-collar work, which is like the thought work, knowledge-based work. And so we have knowledge-based work and we have physical labor kind of work. We have white-collar and blue-collar. But in the, in the garden, we tend to only think there was just manual labor. But actually in verse 19, there's, there's white collar. There's uh, knowledge labor, thought labor. Look at this. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. God, in effect, says, Adam, come here. I have a job for you. I need you to be a scientist, and I need you to name and classify all that I created. That involves the imagination and the mind. In the garden, there is physical labor and there is thought labor. There's white collar and blue collar. But in our culture, we tend to esteem and elevate white collar workers. They're the ones who get paid more. They're the ones who we appreciate oftentimes more. They're the ones who we want to be like. I'm telling you now, I work with young adults, and I have heard young adults say, I feel called to go to this school or that school so I can study this and that, and it's usually around the humanities and all this kind of stuff, very thought-oriented. And then people are willing to say, man, I'm going to pick up my family and move to this law school or to this medical school. I'll go across the country. But when's the last time you've ever heard anyone saying, I feel God is calling me to pick my family up, move to Detroit, and work on the assembly line at the Ford Motor Factory? When have you heard that? Because generally speaking, we elevate 
And we esteem white-collar, knowledge-based work above blue-collar work. But I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, that kind of mindset is foreign to creation because each is proper and valuable and good. Now, I see this all over in our culture. I am not making this story up. I was in a coffee shop recently, and I'm waiting to order my drink, and I'm ear hustling people who are talking about stuff, and I'm just, you know, what else are you going to do? You're waiting. And these two people are there waiting for their drink, and one of the, one of the people, they say this, can you imagine living in Knightson? And I'm sorry if you live in Knightson. It's not my opinion. <laughs> my wife and I would love to live there. But they're like, can you believe that? It's like filled with farmers and hicks. And I'm going, hey, hopefully no one here is from Knightson. And, and then the other person says, yeah, can you imagine being a farmer? Ugh, what a life. Oh, my goodness. And then the other girl responds, yeah, can you imagine living in Nebraska and being like a farmer? You wake up every day and you just smell and you're gross. Oh, my goodness. That's so dumb. And the other girl replies, yeah, I went to college. And I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. <laughs> is this really happening? My favorite thing happens next. The barista steps up and calls out her drink. Soy latte. Now, the interesting thing about it is the girl was just talking about how despicable of a human being a soybean farmer from Nebraska must be. And yet she's ordering an overpriced cup of coffee, which is the fruit of the labor of the soybean farmer. <laughs> now, of course, they probably don't see it that way, but I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you are a hypocrite. <laughs> you think these people are despicable, and yet you are reaping the benefits of their labor. You ought to thank him, not curse him. Have we thought about work that way? Have we, have, have we thought about how we elevate white collar above blue collar and what that might mean for how we love each other in the church? Because if we elevate one above the other, might not that lead to socioeconomic divisions where we think, oh, where do you work? Oh, you work in fast food? Okay. Hmm. You think about that? That is ungodly. That is unbiblical. That is wickedness. We can't value one another based on what they do for a living or what they have accumulated by their work. So work is dignified. It's dignified because God has worked, but it's also dignified because he has delegated his own work to us as human beings to further his work through cultivation and development of what God has made. And it is good, and it is beautiful, and it is joyful, and it is to be treasured. That's why the people in our community who are unemployed, that's why they hurt. It's not just because they don't make a living. It's because deep down inside they feel I'm not as I ought to be. I ought to be engaged in meaningful work, and I'm not. And that's why we pray for our unemployed, because we know that this is a matter well beyond just sustaining life. This is a matter of how God has made you as an image bearer of God. Ought we not to have more grace? So we learn three things. Number one, work is instrumental to sustaining life. Work is good. It helps you have a living. You get to eat and have a house and all this kind of stuff. If you work, like First and Second Thessalonians warns you, if you're not willing to work, you'll go hungry. Get up and work. Number two, work is enjoyable, not just because it produces stuff in order for you to live, but because the act itself is enjoyable. I love working. I can't believe I get to sit on a couch and read books. That's incredible. I can't believe next weekend I get to go and build a closet, in, in, like a closet thing in my closet at home. I get to do that. That's incredible. I don't know what you get to do, but it's probably, at times anyways, enjoyable. Stay-at-home moms, you know the joy of it, but you also know the misery of it. And every worker knows the joys, the highs, and lows. But we also know work is relational. It's relational. God has a relationship to humanity. He made him in his image. God has, we have a relationship to nature. We're supposed to steward and, and care for it. 
We have a relationship to each other. We don't exploit one another with our work, sex slavery and cutting corners and lying and manipulating. And we have a relationship with ourselves. Somebody told me once, I love putting in an honest day's work because I can sleep easy at night because you relate to yourself well. So to summarize, work is intended by God to lead to human flourishing by which humanity would be filled with joy as they provide for their own needs while obeying their maker in the midst of intimate and healthy relationships, all for the glory of God. And yet you and I don't experience work like that. Our experience of work is frustrating, empty, joyless, painful, exploitative, manipulative. Or in other words, we understand that work needs redemption. And next week, we're going to talk about the effects of the fall on work and how Jesus is redeeming it. But until then, just know that work is dignified. It's something God himself has done, something that God has delegated to us as human beings to do. And to enjoy it for its beauty and also for its utility, all for his glory. So, Father, thank you for work. God, thank you for how it gives our life, it just fills our life out and, and makes it enjoyable. It's frustrating at times, but there is a lot of joy that comes from work. Whether we are making things with our minds or making things with our hands, Lord, you are honored by all of it. But Lord, you are not oblivious to the fact that here on earth, we as human beings are struggling with work. It's frustrating, it's painful. But you weren't idle. You did something about it. You sent Jesus, and he's going to rescue work, and he's going to redeem it. And one day, we will experience in the new creation work as it was intended to be. And for that, we praise you because you're awesome. And we thank you for Jesus, who is our everything. His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we stand together? declare that he is our everything. God in my living 